Hello, and welcome to the sermon podcast of First Baptist Church of Versailles, Missouri. It is our hope that the following message will help you grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. For more teachings, please visit our sermon page at fbcversailles.com. Mark chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. He began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug out a pit for a wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he leased it to the tenant farmers and went away. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the farmers to collect some of the fruit of the vineyard from them. But they took him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Again he sent another servant to them, and they hit him on the head and treated him shamefully. Then he sent another, and they killed that one. He also sent many others. Some they beat, and others they killed. He still had one to send, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenant farmers said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they seized him, killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come, kill the farmers, and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and is wonderful in our eyes. They were looking for a way to arrest him, that's Jesus, but feared the crowd because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. So they left him and went away. God, may your word be deeply planted in our minds and in our hearts so that we will not walk away and forget it, but that we would meditate upon it, that we would understand it, and that it would stir us into action. Amen. There's an old story about a park ranger at Yellowstone National Park who was leading a group of hikers toward a fire lookout. Beautiful view once you got there, climbed the fire, you know, the fire lookout tower, incredible. And the ranger was so excited to take this group of people, he was so focused on getting them there and sharing with them about all the flowers and all the trees and all the animals and the streams and everything that's around them that the radio noise that he was receiving, it was just distracting him. So he just flipped it off. Just off. As the group got closer and closer to the tower, one of the lookouts ran up to the group and he was out of breath. And he asked the ranger, why, why weren't you responding to the calls on the radio? Well, apparently there had been a grizzly bear stalking the group and everyone was trying to warn them about the danger. You know, it's, I mean, it's kind of, nobody got hurt, by the way. It's kind of a funny story, though, right? Um, when, when was the last time you got in trouble for ignoring the warnings? Right? We get in trouble all the time for ignoring warnings. In fact, I'm not sure the last time I read the warnings on anything that I purchased. There's like, a, there's like seven pages. It's like, you know, it says weird stuff, too. Like, uh, like about, uh, I can't remember, anyway. But you know what I'm talking about. Um, not paying attention to the warnings can get you in trouble. Uh, and for those of you that are married, you know what I'm talking about, all right? 
Well, let's quickly remember the road that we've taken to arrive at our text today. On the first day of the week, Sunday, Jesus enters Jerusalem to an incredible parade of people. They lined the streets. They threw their cloaks out in front of them. They waved their leafy branches and they called out, Hosanna, son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the first thing that Jesus did, the very first thing that Jesus does is he goes to the temple to survey what was happening. But he doesn't do anything. Not at that moment. He just takes it all in. And then he goes back to Bethany for the evening to presumably eat a meal and go to sleep. Well, the next morning, on Monday morning, they get up and they're going to head back to Jerusalem and Jesus is hungry. And so he sees a fig tree that has leaves on it. And it looked like There would be fruit on it. If there's leaves, there's probably fruit. But he walked up to the tree and found nothing but leaves. So he cursed the fig tree. And we find out that the cursing of the fig tree is actually just a living parable for how he feels about the empty religion that he finds in the temple. The fruitless religion. And so when Jesus arrives at the temple, he finds that people are just going through the motions. They look good. They're, they're buying and selling their sacrifices. He, he came to the center of religious life expecting to find prayerfulness, fruitfulness. Instead, he discovers neither of those. In fact, what he discovers is that the hearts of the people are very far away from God. So what does Jesus do? He clears the temple. By the way, next time someone asks you what would Jesus do, remind them that he made a whip and flipped tables over. So that's always an option. The religious leaders, not happy. They're not happy about any of this. So when they spot Jesus back in the temple the next day, by the way, Jesus was never one to lay low. There's some times before where he's like trying to get his disciples to find some rest and things like that, but Jesus doesn't seem to ever really lay low. He wants to be where the people are. He wants to be teaching them. That's what he's here for, to call people to repentance. So Jesus is in the temple the next day. This is on a Tuesday. And the delegation from the Sanhedrin comes. That's the Jewish Supreme Court. And they try and trap Jesus with a question. They demand to know where Jesus had received the authority to do the things that he was doing and to teach the things that he was teaching. Because they were the ones that gave the authority out and none of them gave Jesus the authority to do any of that stuff. Well, Jesus answers their question with a question. And he asks them about John's baptism. Was it from heaven or was it from man? Where was John's authority? Who gave John the authority to do that? Because the truth of the matter is, Jesus and John were given authority to do the things they did by the same person, God. They didn't want to answer him. The religious leaders didn't want to answer Jesus because no matter how they answered, they would lose. If they said, well, it's from heaven, then Jesus would go, well, why didn't you believe him? Why didn't you get baptized? One of the things that he said was that I was the Messiah. And so if they said from heaven then they would have to admit that he's the Messiah and they'd have to submit to his authority. And then if they said that it was from man, well, that wasn't good either because the crowds believed that John was a true prophet of God. 
And so the whole crowd would have turned against them. And that really shows where they got their authority. Their authority wasn't from God. It was from what people thought about them. And as long as they made the people happy, then they got to stay in their positions of authority. So they said, we don't know. And that's where we left them last week. Shamefully standing in the temple, puzzled and angry. They were so sure that they were going to get Jesus. But instead, Jesus got them. Mark tells us that Jesus didn't wait around for them to ask some other question. Instead, he confronts them with a story, a parable. And this is not just any parable. It's a historical parable. Because it tells the history of Israel from the day that they left Egypt through the destruction of Jerusalem. It's giving, in giving this parable of the vineyard, it shows us about a patient landowner. The meaning of this parable is very straightforward. God sent his son, and you killed him. There was a murder in the vineyard, and we know who committed the crime. By the way, the religious leaders don't like this parable. They don't like it at all. And it's not because it wasn't a good story. It wasn't because it wasn't a good parable that didn't teach a valuable lesson. It was all of those things. Because Jesus is the master teacher. No, they didn't like it because it was about them, verse 12 tells us. They were looking for a way to arrest Jesus because they knew he had spoken that parable against them. They ignored the warnings of God. They ignored God's warnings that he sent through the prophets. And they would ignore the Son of God. And they would kill him. And judgment would be coming. They're in danger. And they've flicked off the walkie-talkie. And they've decided to stop listening. But we're also in danger. If we ignore the warnings that are found in the Bible, we are in danger of losing our souls. So we've got to pay careful attention this morning so that we don't fall under the same judgment as these religious leaders. Beginning in verse 1, Jesus speaks to them in parables. And we know that the them is the religious leaders for two reasons. One, they were standing there right after Jesus had finished answering their question, well, questioning their question. And then two, we know it's about the religious leaders because they admit as much in verse 12. They knew it was about them. This parable is one of judgment. It's similar to that same clever trap that Nathan used, the prophet Nathan used for King David in 2 Samuel chapter 12 when he confronts, when he confronts David about his sin with Bathsheba. And he goes and he tells him the story of, of this very wealthy man who has friends come and there's this other man who doesn't have very much but he has the one lamb that's his pet. And the wealthy man goes and steals the lamb from the from the man, he steals his pet and takes it and he, and he kills it and he eats it with his friends. And David erupts in anger and he says, that's not right. And then he talks about the judgment that should be placed on the man who stole the pet lamb from the other man. And then Nathan, I just imagine Nathan has long, bony, pointy fingers. I don't know, I just in my mind... 
And he raises his arm up with his cloak and the pointy finger and he points it right in David's face and he goes, you're that man. David had fallen into his own trap. He snared himself. And like David, these religious leaders had snared themselves. Now we have to be cautious when we're interpreting parables because for most of the parables in the Bible, there's really only one point that it's trying to make. It's kind of the moral of the story. And the rest of the details that are in the parable are just there to support the main point of the parable. And they don't have a deeper meaning at all. They're just there to carry the story along. But this parable is a little bit different. Because the imagery that Jesus uses is from Isaiah chapter 5. And this means that the parable is to be taken a little bit more allegorically. And this means that, the, that most of the people that are in the parable represent something else. And the things that are in the parable also represent something else. It has a deeper meaning. It's an allegory. But again, we don't want to push that too far either because um, we, can, we can make things mean things that they're not if we're trying to make everything mean something. But in this parable, there is additional meaning. And so when we look back at Isaiah chapter 5, what we learn is that the man who plants the vineyard is God the Father. We learn that the vineyard is Israel. We learn that the tenants are the religious leaders. Those are the ones that, were, that God put in charge, left in charge to take care of his people, Israel. We learn that the servants are the prophets, the faithful prophets, who come and and give them God's word, thus saith the Lord. And the beloved son is, of course, who? Jesus, right? It's Jesus. So the people who are listening to Jesus' parable would have picked up on the Isaiah 5 connection immediately because they were very familiar with that passage. And this first verse in Mark chapter 12, shows us God's incredible grace. And really, this whole parable is about God's incredible grace toward people. And it's explaining that in in great detail, because the thump at the end, Jesus wants it to hit with the force of a sledgehammer. Jesus is showing God's patience and God's grace and His love. And it's described in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 this way, The Lord is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. This is an interesting story, or an interesting parable really, because it was probably taken from the kind of thing that happened all the time in that day. Wealthy men would purchase large amounts of land in foreign countries, but were unable to take care of it themselves because they lived so far away. So they would rent it out to locals who would lease the property, tend to the crops, and then pay for the use of that land. That still happens today, doesn't it? People farm land that doesn't belong to them, and they pay the landowner. Now the religious leaders, they're kind of like us in that they were trying to find themselves in the story. And that's what we do, right? We try and find ourselves in the story. Who are we? 
who do I identify with in the story? You know, like when we read about David and Goliath, a lot of times we identify ourselves as David, and then we identify whatever the challenging thing is that we're facing as our Goliath, and we have to overcome it. When in reality, David, in the story of David and Goliath, is Christ. And Goliath is sin and death and the forces of evil. And we're the Israelites cowering back at the camp, unsure of what to do or how to overcome this seemingly impossible enemy. And so they want to find themselves in the story. And so they probably would have identified with the wealthy landowner right out of the gate. At least that's what they believed they were until the very end of the story when Jesus flips it around on top of them. Like David with Nathan, they knew their guilt. But unlike David, they failed to repent. What are the gracious actions that God takes in this first verse? Well, notice first the vineyard itself. God has meticulously prepared the vineyard, providing everything that's necessary for fruitfulness. In Psalm 73, Asaph exclaims, God is indeed good to Israel. So God planted this nation and called it Israel. It was a special nation, a special vineyard. He cared for her. He protected her. He put leaders in place to provide and keep her safe. He caused her to prosper and to be fruitful and to bring Him glory. He put up a wall to keep out what Song of Songs calls the little foxes and the other animals that would damage the crop. He dug a pit for the wine press to make the vineyard profitable and put a tower in for security and shelter. God spared no expense. His grace and generosity was without measure. However, even with all the good things that God had done, Isaiah chapter 5, verse 2, which remember is the backdrop for this parable. Jesus is using the Isaiah 5 passage to inform what he's saying. In Isaiah chapter 5, verse 2, he says, He expected it, that's the vineyard, to yield good grapes but it only yielded worthless grapes. He expected a good crop, a fruitful crop, but he didn't get that. He did everything to ensure that they would be fruitful, yet they produced no fruit. The vineyard did the exact opposite of what was expected. Even after God went to great effort and expense to ensure that they had all that they needed to produce a great harvest, but it failed in its purpose. It missed its mission. How often has God provided for you? How often has He equipped you for the mission to which He's called you to live? And how many times have we failed to accomplish the purpose for which He intended us? I just want that question to hang out there in the air for a minute. 
because God is incredibly gracious to us. And I have to be cautious here myself because there are many times when I think, God, if I only had this or that, or if we only had someone who came that knew how to do this or that, or if we only had this kind of thing in our building, or if we only had whatever it is, then certainly we could reach people for the gospel in our community. Certainly we could do it. You just, God, you haven't given us what we need to do it. So how do you expect us to be fruitful? And God says, I have given you everything that you need. I provided for every need that you have. I've been gracious to you and I've given you so many things. Use those things to reach people with the gospel. He wants us to use what he's already given. How does... How is having something else going to help us reach people with the gospel if we're not even trying now? We've got to be faithful with what we have. And then maybe God will bless us with other things. And maybe He won't. But we've got to be faithful. He's given us everything that we've needed. But how many times have we failed to accomplish the purpose for which He intended? Well, this first verse, verse 1, shows us the incredible grace of God. And the next four verses, together with that, show us God's incredible patience. When the landowner would, uh, would rent out his land, he would make certain agreements with the tenants. And it was all based on trust. He believed that they would be faithful to take care of his land and to make the payment at the appropriate time. And so part of that agreement was that the landowner would be given part of the produce of the property and the tenants would keep the rest to live on and make profit for themselves. In fact, the law stated that in order for a landowner to retain the rights to his land, he must receive the payment. However, instead of paying the bounty or paying with the bounty of the vineyard, they paid with beatings. This landowner had a legitimate right to send servants to collect what belonged to him. We are told in the second verse that it was harvest time. It was the right time to send a servant to come back with with the, the gift, with the payment. But instead, the first servant that was sent was beaten and sent back empty handed. And this was no ordinary beating. The original word means to skin or to flay. And so this was a severe beating to the point that skin was being ripped apart. So the landowner sends a second servant. And I can only imagine, if I were the second servant, I'd go, excuse me, you want me to do what? You remember remember what happened to Bobby Flay over here, right? What they did to him. He was because they flayed him. Never mind, forget it. It's a bad joke. I'm going to cut that one out of the video later. (laughs) But he sends a second servant. And they treat the second servant even worse. And they hit the first one. They hit him on the head. And it says he treated him shamefully. I don't even want to go into what all that means. But it was an act of total disrespect and defiance. Each time the brutalized servants go back to the landlord empty-handed... And what does the landowner do next? 
he sends another servant. A third servant. This is incredible patience on the part of the landowner. He's already had two servants beaten severely, and they haven't paid him what he's owed. And the third servant comes, and, and the tenants, their fury is out of control, and they kill that one. And there's a very interesting phrase at the end of verse 5. He also sent many others. Many others. Some they beat and others they killed. So it wasn't just three. There were many others. An, un, an uncountable number of servants were sent to warn, to Receive the fruitfulness of the vineyard. The owner repeatedly sent servant after servant in an attempt for the farmers to make it right. But no fruit was returned. These servants, they represent the faithful prophets that are sent by God again and again in the Old Testament from the beginning of Hebrews we're told that God spoke through prophets. Here's what it says. Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors by the prophets at different times and in different ways. And he goes on to recount how the prophets were received by the people in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 35 through 38. Other people were tortured, not accepting release so they might gain a better resurrection. Others experienced mockings and scourgings as well as bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawed in two. They died by the sword. They wandered about in sheepskin and goatskins, destitute, afflicted and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and on mountains, hiding in caves and holes in the ground. That was the reception that Israel gave to its greatest prophets. Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 25 and 26 shares the same theme. Since the day your ancestors came out of the land of Egypt until today, I have sent all my servants, the prophets, to you time and time again. However, my people wouldn't listen to me or pay attention, but became obstinate. They did more evil than their ancestors. What about Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 26? But they were disobedient and rebelled against you. They flung your law behind their backs and killed your prophets who warned them in order to turn them back to you. They committed terrible blasphemies. Or how about 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verse 15 and 16? But the Lord, the God of their ancestors, sent word against them by the hand of His messengers, sending them time and time again. For He had compassion on His people and on His dwelling place. But they kept ridiculing God's messengers, despising His word, and scoffing at His prophets until the Lord's wrath was so stirred up against His people that there was no remedy. I could keep going, but I think you get the idea. God sent prophet after prophet after prophet in order to bring them back. And instead of receiving them, and instead of listening to the warning, they turned it off and they turned those prophets off permanently. Jeremiah was beaten and put into stocks. Isaiah, tradition says, was the prophet that was sawn in two. A prophet named Zechariah was stoned to death 
in the temple courts. John the Baptist had recently been beheaded. And Jesus would get the same welcome that all the other prophets had received. Now you can see what Jesus is doing here, right? These were the men that knew the scriptures and they knew the history of Israel better than anyone else. And Matthew gives us a little bit of insight into their hypocrisy. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus pronounces woes against them. And he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You build tombs to the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous and say, If we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we wouldn't have taken part with them in the shedding of the prophets' blood. (laughs) It's kind of funny, really. I mean, it's not funny, but the hypocrisy is funny. Because they're saying, they're saying that if they had been alive when Isaiah the prophet was alive, and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and all the others, if they had been alive then, they would have treated them so much better. That's, in fact, what they do now is they made these shrines for them, these tombs for them, and they made them all beautiful and they decorated them up to show them honor. And they said, if we were alive then, we never would have treated them like that. And, and we, because we have chronological snobbery, you know, we can look back and say, oh, they're stupid for that. They're doing the exact same thing to Jesus. That they said that they wouldn't have done like their forefathers did, but they're doing the exact same thing to Jesus. It's no wonder that five verses later in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus will lament saying, Jerusalem, Jerusalem who kills the prophets and stone those who are sent to her. It's pretty incredible how the scriptures come together in this story. How the prophecies and how how the story of God's redemption for Israel is pictured here. In this short story, we see it all. We see God's great grace. We see His patience in sending messenger after messenger so that they can be that they can repent and follow God, yet they ignore again and again and resist again and again. And if you're like me, your next question was, why does God send so many servants? Why is he so patient? Because I think that probably for me, if I sent my first one and and he didn't come back very good. And then I sent my second one, and they did the same thing or worse to him. I'd say, time to go burn down the vineyard. Time to go exact justice. But God's patient. Why? Well, we find out that God created humanity for a purpose. And the purpose for which he created humanity was to have a relationship with Him. In the very beginning, God would come and walk with humans in the garden in the cool of the day. There was an intimacy there. And even though we may ignore Him and we might resist Him, His faithful love endures forever. He'll never let go. 
It would be easy for us to pass judgment on these religious leaders, but we must be cautious because how often have we taken the patience of God for granted? God's patience is intended for us to repent and to return to Him. Yet many take His patience as a permission to continue in the sin that they're living in. God's incredibly patient. Even with rebellious sinners like you and me who have ignored and resisted Him, He continues to send us His Word. He continues, continues to call us to repent. And He continues to pursue us. And really, when you combine the incredible grace of God with the incredible patience of God, it really culminates in the incredible love of God. And we see His love for us in this parable when He sends His only Son. Look at verses 6-9. through He still had one to send, a beloved Son. Finally, He sent Him to them, saying, They will respect My Son. But the tenant farmers said to each other, let's, let's come together and kill him. He's the heir and his inheritance will be ours. So they seized him, killed him, threw him out of the vineyard. You know, he sends his only son to settle the debt. And when he arrives in our parable, the tenants hatch a plot to kill him. Now, it's really interesting how the land stuff worked in that time. You could, you could claim a piece of land if there was no living heir to claim it. So like if you'd been taking care of a piece of land and there's no living heir, you could claim that land for yourself. And so the tenants must have assumed that since the son had come, the father had died, and the son was coming to set up his claim to the property. But they were wrong. The father wasn't dead. Now the father believed that they would respect his son, but his son was not respected. And anyone who has read the Gospel of John will immediately recognize John 3.16 in this analogy. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Anyone who believes in Him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. And here we have evil tenants living in darkness, killing the sun. Now the mission of the sun was similar to the mission of the servants who had come before. His arrival, in fact, was the final act of grace for the tenants. Certainly they would show fruitfulness in front of the sun, right? Wrong. Instead, sinners murder the sun. Not only in our parable, but also in reality. In an effort to be in charge of their own lives, in an effort to, to claim their own territory, they killed anything that would get in their way. In our parable, it's the heir 
the final heir to the property. And in the case of the world, it's the Son of God. We've tried to kill God because we didn't want to obey Him. Because we didn't want to submit to Him. We didn't want to bend our knee to His authority, to His Lordship. We wanted to be our own Lord. We wanted to be our own God. We wanted to be the captain of our own soul. They killed the Son, and so have we. You know, we're reminded of Christmas in this, in this parable because God sent His Son, right? In the incarnation, the gift of God's amazing love. But we're also reminded of Easter as well in the crucifixion and in the grace that God shows us in His incredible sacrifice. Charles Spurgeon said, If you reject Him, He answers you with tears. If you wound Him, He bleeds out with cleansing. If you kill him, he dies to redeem you. If you bury him, he rises again to bring us resurrection. Jesus is love in the flesh. And then later on in that same sermon, he said, Let us see for a minute who this messenger is. He is one greatly beloved of his Father, and in himself he is of surpassing excellence. The Lord Jesus Christ is so inconceivably glorious that I tremble at any attempt to describe His glory. Assuredly, He is very God of very God, co-equal and co-eternal with the Father, and yet He lowered Himself to take on the form of a human. He was born an infant into our weakness, and He lived as a carpenter to share in our toil. He took upon Himself the form of a servant, and yet in Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. He is the Prince of the kings of the earth, and yet He took a towel and washed His disciples' feet. Because of His Godhead, you must not dare harden your hearts. He is God's well-beloved, and if you are wise, He will be yours too. Do not turn your back on Him, whom all the angels worship. Beware lest you reject one whom God loves so well, for he will take it as an insult to himself. He that despises the anointed of God has blasphemed against God himself. You put your finger into the very eye of God when you slight his son. In grieving the Christ, you vex the very heart of God. Therefore, do not do it. I beseech you then by the love which God bears to his son to listen to this matchless messenger of mercy who would persuade you to repent. When you reject the Son, you reject the One who sent Him. God sent His Son in love so that humanity might have a way to be forgiven, to be reconciled to Him. Instead of rejecting Him, we should be repenting. Finally and quickly... God's grace, His patience, and His love one day will run out and judgment will come. And there's an incredible judgment for those who continue to reject and resist God's warning. Romans chapter 11, verse 22 says, Therefore consider God's kindness and His severity. To reject the Son brings judgments. That's what happens to our vineyard owners in verses 9 through 12. They have taken the patience 
of the owner for granted for too long. And they thought they could continue to resist and resist. And God and the vineyard owner are incredibly patient, sending warning after warning after warning after warning. But there is a time that comes when judgment will happen. And again, I'm going to quote Charles Spurgeon at length because he does such a great job with this passage. He says it so well. Remember once more that if you do not hear the well-beloved Son of God, you have refused your last hope. He is God's ultimatum. Nothing remains when Christ is refused. No one else can be sent. Heaven itself contains no further messenger. If Christ is rejected, hope is rejected. I should like every person here that is unconverted to remember that there is no other gospel and no more sacrifice for sin. I've heard talk of a larger hope than the gospel sets before us, but it's just a fable with nothing in Scripture to support it. Rejecting Christ, you have rejected all. You have shut against yourself the door of hope. Christ, who knows better than all pretenders, declares that he, he that believes not shall be damned. There remains nothing but damnation for those who believe not in Jesus. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. In our parable, the farmers had rejected the Son and they were condemned to death. Our response to the Son, to Jesus Christ, will also decide our eternal destiny. All who reject the Son will not receive eternal life. And Jesus quotes from Psalm 118, shifting the metaphor from from a vineyard to a building. And he says that the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And one interesting element of this is that Psalm 118 is the same psalm that they were yelling just a few days before when Jesus entered Jerusalem. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then a little later on in the psalm, there's, there's this passage about the rejected stone. But God takes that which man rejects and makes it the keystone, the most important stone in the whole building structure, the one that provides its stability. It's the capstone of a column, a keystone in an arch, a foundation, a cornerstone. And Jesus' rejection, His humiliation and crucifixion seemed like it was the end. At that time, they thought they had done away with Jesus. They had killed the Son. Now, now it all belonged to them. But God will use it all for a greater purpose that can only be described in verse 11 as coming about from the Lord and something that is so wonderful in our eyes. But that wasn't the case for the religious leaders. It wasn't wonderful in their eyes. It was awful in their eyes. Because they would be put under judgment, just like the vineyard workers. They tried to look for a way to arrest Jesus, but once again, their plan was foiled because they feared man more than they feared God. I think that this parable is very clear. God wins even when it looks like he's lost. God wins even when it looks like he's lost. 
There are many people in our world who look around and they don't have any hope. They think things are just out of control. There's There's no purpose in any of this. God wins even when it looks like he's losing. He sent prophet after prophet after prophet. His own son, they killed them all. Three days later, Jesus rose from the grave. He rose from the grave proving that God had not lost at all, but that his plan is bigger than what we could even think of or imagine on our own. Here, redemptive history reaches its climax in the victory of the sun, the rejected stone becoming the capstone. So what? Right? Now we understand the parable of the the vineyard, the, the vineyard owner and the terrible workers in it, right? We've worked our way through it. So what, what does that mean for me? Well, think back for just a moment. God's incredible grace provides everything that we need. Everything that we need. There's nothing that you need that God has not provided you to accomplish the mission for which God has put you here to do. And the question that we must ask ourselves is, how are we using what God has provided to accomplish His mission and to bring Him glory? And make sure that we're not taking for granted that which God has given us. We also know that God is patient. Incredibly patient. I know He's incredibly patient because I know how terrible of a sinner I am. And He's patient with me. And he'll be patient with you as well. But we need to be making sure that we're listening to the warnings of God. And where we find the warnings of God are in his scripture. So we need to be reading his scripture so that our heart can be filled with his word. So it will soften us so that we can repent. Instead of being hardened by our sin and rejecting and resisting him. God's patience isn't so that we can sin just a little bit more before He comes. It's His patience is there so we'll repent. And our lives will be a display of His grace and His glory. But we also know that God's love is incredible. And He sent His Son to die for our sins so that He would take our place on the cross, that He would carry our sins so that we could have forgiveness. And not only, for, not only can we have forgiveness, but everybody in the world can have forgiveness. Everybody in the world can be offered an opportunity to be saved. And we, can't, we shouldn't keep that to ourselves. We shouldn't keep God's grace and patience and love to ourselves. In fact, the fact that there's judgment coming ought to motivate us to be out there sharing more and more with people. Because if we ignore His warning, if we ignore His word, if we resist His grace and His patience and His love and our hearts become hard, we're going to experience the eternal judgment of God in hell. And as glorious and eternal and wonderful and indescribable as heaven is, those same things are true about the awfulness of hell. God's grace and His patience and His love last only as long as we live for those who are rejecting and resisting Him. For those of us who have trusted in Him, His love and patience 
and grace will last for all of eternity. But for those who reject him, it only lasts as long as they live, and then judgment comes. So we got to respond to him, and we need to respond to him today. Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of First Baptist Church of Versailles. We would love it if you joined us in person. Our services are Sunday at 1045 a.m. and Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. We are located at 211 East Jasper Street in Versailles, Missouri. For more sermon recordings, visit our sermon page at fbcversailles.com.